It's your King Forever Burrow. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at I Am Forever Burrow. There you'll find all my latest posts and content. So, guys, I was going through some memories earlier today, and I came across a picture of a Chinese spot off of Torresdale in Frankfurt. Uh, Frankfurt is a neighborhood in Philadelphia, right? For those of you who don't know, I lived in Philadelphia for just shy of a year uh, back in 2016 and 2017 um, after I took an assignment or I took a job in New Jersey um, for a company by the name of Johnson Controls, right? Johnson Controls uh, at that time was a Fortune 50 company, uh, top 50 company in the U.S., and uh, I took on a role as a regional uh, distribution manager uh, for the Northeast. And prior to, you know, moving to New Jersey to take that role on, uh, as I said, I lived in Philadelphia for just under a year while I was getting my bread together uh, to be able to move the family uh, to the Northeast, right? And, and, you know, to relocate them from the Southeast up to uh, to where I was in New Jersey. Uh, when I had first got out of the military, right, I was um, kind of at a place where I wasn't sure what was next, right? There was a lot of uncertainty. I had to redefine who I was as a person and as a leader and transition into, you know, the civilian sector and figure out what I was going to do. And that came with a lot of pressure, right? That came with a lot of doubt um, and, like I said, a lot of uncertainty. And for a while there, I wasn't sure exactly how things were going to turn out. You know, um, when I first got out, I was broke. You know, I had served 13 years in the military and it's hard to say, you know, uh, let's be very transparent. It's, it's, it's hard to save in America uh, when you're making, you know, 40 to 60 thousand dollars a year. Uh, and at best, you know, as a soldier, I think my highest earning year was, you know, around year 10 uh, to 13, where I was making um, just over sixty thousand dollars a year. And to some that may seem like a lot of money, but it really just depends on your family dynamics your lifestyle, things of that nature, right? You know, if you look at 60000 and, you know, your overhead is is relatively low, $60,000 could feel like $600,000, right? It's just all about, like I said, the lifestyle and the family dynamics that you're supporting. When I got out of the military, like I said, I was broke. Um, it took a while for my benefits to kick in. You know, luckily for me, uh, I was medically retired from the U.S. Army after serving 13 years. And the difference between a medical uh, res- retirement and a medical separation is really, it really boils down to, to pension and benefits, right? Uh, when you're medically separated, you're typically given a severance packet and a job well done. With the military retirement, you're given your pension and uh, the benefits that, that go along with that. Uh, as if you had did 20 years, right? So through the grace of God, I was medically retired after going through a medical evaluation board back in 2015, 2016 timeframe. And during that process, man, it was very uh, difficult to maintain optimism. I was a career soldier. I was at, you know, like I said, I served 13 years, but the goal for me was 20, right? From the time I put that uniform on and found myself as a as a young man, and developed into a a young leader, um, I was all about the military. You know, I think if you ask anyone that had an opportunity to serve with me, they would say that I took it serious, right? I never took my time for granted in the service, and I never took anyone else's time for granted. And, um, you know, we'll talk more about, you know, my time in the Army in the episodes to come. 
like I said, I retired back in 2016, uh, and I thank God for that opportunity to serve and to retire uh, and to have the, the, the benefits that go along with that to be able to support my family. When I got out, like I said, you know, I was broke. I had to figure out what was next, and, you know, I was in a very uncertain space. I had to figure out who I was going to become because for the last 13 years, I had been Sergeant Simmons, right, you know, you know, prior to, you know, becoming um, an NCO. You know, it was Private Simmons and uh, Specialist Simmons, but for the last 13 years in all of my adult life, I was a soldier, and the transition was tough, man. It was tough. Um, I dealt with a lot of depression. I dealt with heightened anxiety. I was actually diagnosed with general anxiety uh, during my MEB process. <clears throat> and let me just say, I'm from a generation of soldiers that deployed back to back. During my time in the military, I deployed three times. To be honest with you, that's that's light. Um, I did two tours in Iraq and then one, one tour in, in Afghanistan. So to say, you know, that a diagnosis of general anxiety was justified, you know, is to say the least, right? You know, I think right now, I feel like there's this big mirror in the country. People are reflecting on uh, mental health and things like general anxiety and PTSD and bipolar depression. And it's calling for a lot of people to do a lot of self-reflecting. To be honest with you, you know, coming from poverty, and then going into the military, it probably doubled my chances of having uh, general anxiety, you know, later in life, right? Coming up in uh, poverty and being exposed to so much violence and crime. So, yeah, um, my chances of having, you know, PTSD or general anxiety was, was doubled, you know, given my upbringing and uh, my, my time in the uh, military and, you know, going through uh, several combat tours. During that time period from when I retired to when I took this uh, role with Johnson Controls, I was in a very topsy-turvy space where I was drinking a lot, uh, but I needed something to, to cope with the frustration and anxiety that I was experiencing. So, yeah, it was a, a very delicate time for me um, as I was transitioning to the civilian sector. And, I, and I'm sure that, you know, I share that same or similar story to many veterans who are transitioning out of the military into the civilian sector. And it is a transition for us guys. I mean, you, you, you got to think about it after serving, you know, time in the military, you know, for however long, um, I would say in general four to anywhere from four to eight years. And, you know, ultimately uh, 20 to 30 for those of us who are career um, soldiers, the culture is a lot different than in the civilian sector. We deploy. Um, we are exposed to very hazardous environments for extensive amounts of time, a year to uh, 18 months at times. Our deployments can be, at least in the U.S. Army. Being in those conditions, you see a lot of things that your normal, everyday civilian doesn't see. Uh, and when they do see it, you know, they're exposed to so much trauma from those incidents, right? You know, think about the people who were at the Boston uh, Marathon bombings or the guys who experienced um, 9-11 and you think about the trauma they experienced on that day that has been with them for the rest of their lives and then you think about a soldier who's in a combat environment who's experiencing you know 9-11 every day for 365 days right and you know that is that's that's a bit of a reach because there's some days where you know there's there's not so much going on you know the potential for it to to be a chaotic day is is uh, is there and so when you come back to the U.S. and things are much calmer, it's hard to turn that off, you know, because you turn that adrenaline on 
and you turn that space on in your mind to be able to survive those conditions. And it's hard to turn it off when you come back over here into our borders. As a result of that, 22 veterans commit suicide every day. You know, it's my belief that those are the guys who can't turn it off, right? The, the trauma and things that they experienced over there are just too significant to try and deal with on a day-to-day basis, right? And so guys continue to build relationships with, you know, veterans in your workplace, uh, veterans in your community, and uh, just be, you know, a, a friend to those guys because, you know, ultimately uh, we sacrificed a lot to not only uh, protect our families, but to protect U.S. citizens, right? And so uh, there I was retired in the middle of transition and I was going through it. There was a lot of nights that I spent up worrying. A lot of nights my wife had to uh, talk me off of a ledge. Um, and there were some very intense moments during that whole ordeal where I could have been one of the 22 veterans that commit suicide every day in this country. With my family structure uh, and a supportive wife and children that I have and just that willingness in me to be resilient and to push through hardship, I was able to uh, overcome that battle. And And when I did, I began to you know, applied to different positions, different roles all over the place. When I was coming out the military, you know, I was adamant that I would go wherever the bag was, right? So if the bag was in South Dakota, I'd be in South Dakota getting that bag. And when I first started applying for roles, I wasn't getting a lot back. You know, those of you who are currently in the job market or who have been in the job market uh, previously, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to find that role, to find that, uh, that that right company, that right culture um, and, and to align your skills with, you know, what it is you truly want to do uh, with your career. And so at one point, you know, I had applied to Home Depot for a role making somewhere between 10 to $12 an hour. And I was going to take that role part time just to start, you know, generating some money to kind of get us out of a, of a rough spot we was in financially. Um, some time goes by and I end up getting a, a response from um, someone at Johns Controls about a role that I had applied to, which was the regional uh, distribution manager role. I got the call. They wanted to schedule me for an interview. And uh, that consisted of flying out to Philadelphia and interviewing at the facility with the uh, general manager for then at the time, uh, New Jersey and New York. They paid for it. And I had and I had some experience prior to that with uh, being flown out or reimbursed for travel uh, to go interview at some some big companies. I interviewed at um, Union Pacific back in 2016 when I was transitioning out of the military and was reimbursed for my travels to uh, Omaha, Nebraska. So I had been through it before in between the day that I was scheduled to take the interview, I had a guy's trip that was planned. We ended up taking a, a guy's trip to, to Las Vegas. And like I said, I was broke. So a lot of that trip was financed by, you know, my friends and, and brethren at the time. You know, to this day, I'm very appreciative of that because after I came home from that trip, I felt like myself again. That was something that I had been voided for a good amount of time at that point. You know, from when I began the MEV process throughout the transition out of the military, um, I was just in a in a really bad space. And I felt like after that trip, you know, and being around that brotherhood and that, and that fellowship, um, it really helped put me uh, back in a space of, of confidence and, and, and knowing who I truly was, you know, in and out of the uniform. After the trip, I fly out to Philadelphia on the day of my birthday. This was November 15, 2016. I had just turned 31 and um, I interviewed all day long. It was a series of in-person interviews, 
along with some uh, virtual interviews over the phone at that time. Uh, and it was uh, it was intensive. I interviewed with some of the associates that I would be uh, leading um, later. I had never been through a process that lengthy for, for a job. I remember coming back to the South saying to myself, man, you did good. You did really good. I really felt confident that I had uh, performed really well during the interview process and even had gotten an accolade for how I interviewed. So I was sure that I was going to get the job, but, you know, there was still that unsureness. And I probably flew back on like a Tuesday. And on Friday, I got the call that I got the job. And it was it was big. It was the highlight of my career at that time. Uh, as I said, I was struggling with identifying who I was as a person, who I was as a leader. And if whether or not I had been ex- as good as uh, my military career would have led you to believe I was. I Man, I took it to Facebook and I remember making this video and I was very emotional uh, about the experience because, like I said, I had been going through a lot, a lot of things that, you know, had not been disclosed to anyone outside of my immediate family, you know, my wife and children. You know, I just thank God for uh, the opportunity. I was I was excited and joyful and grateful and emotional and um then reality kicked in (laughs) how am i going to take this job in new jersey and i'm broke (laughs) so my network put me in uh in conversations with a guy i had served with back in uh, missouri who had recently transitioned out of the military and was living in Philadelphia at the time. And so we ended up connecting, you know, he gave me an invitation to his home. And I told him, you know, I wouldn't be able to pay him anything, you know, just out of the goodness of his heart. He allowed me to stay with him. Shout out to him. I appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. So I figured it out, right? It meant I was going to have to sleep on the floor for quite some time. That's the sacrifice I was willing to make to go and establish myself and continue my career. Uh, I went out to Philadelphia and I um, slept on the floor for, you know, a little over eight months, uh, driving back and forth between Philly and New Jersey uh, daily and having to pay that toll. The community, uh, like I said, uh, was rough Frankfurt, right? And, you know, it's not too far from uh, North Philly, you know, Erie Ave. In fact, we were were a couple blocks from Erie Ave. Man, those of you who know Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia at one point was considered the murder capital of the of the U.S. On my block, I lived on Bridge and Torchdale in a row house, right? I slept upstairs in the second bedroom on the floor for, like I said, eight months or so. And on that block, you know, Bridge and Torchdale, there must have been four or five killings during my time there. And one of the kids I actually had talked through in passing, his name was Troy. He had got, you know, shot out there. You know, they had a mural for him and you know, things of that nature. But, you know, life was delicate. Uh, in that area, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. And I lived beside some some very questionable people. Of course, a lot of uh, hand-to-hand going on on that block. I think your normal person would have been terrified to enter and exit their car and their home on that block. When I got there, of course, you know, they checked me out. You know what I mean? I know they looked at the car. They saw the tags, saw the Iraqi tags on the car. And I remember one day I was um, getting out the car and I was getting ready to go into the house. And this kid was like, hey, were you in the army? And I was like, yeah, you know, I was in the army. And he said, did you, you went to Iraq? I was like, yeah, I was in Iraq. He was like, damn. He was like, "Death." He said, he said, um, you know, we at war out here every day. And I was like, yeah, I know, man. I come from a community similar to this one where, you know, there's a lot of death and carnage and violence that we experience on a day-to-day basis, you know, uh, growing up, you know, it wasn't nothing to hear. Gunshots rang out and 
you know, your mama tell you, hey, get down on the floor. And after a while, it becomes normal, but it's not normal. Right. And, and that speaks to the trauma that we experience while living in poverty a lot of times. And so uh, after a while, um, when I would come and go, the guys on that block would make a hole for me. Just like when I was in the military and I would go into a barracks room or defac or somewhere. And, and, you know, as our NCO walks through, we know that we make a hole for that NCO. Right. You know, so that he can walk freely. And they would do that for me. And it was respectable. And I got a chance to build with those guys, you know, through passing and having conversations with them, sitting out there on the stoop, talking about my experiences and understanding theirs and, you know, just building that level of respect. And it was something that I was comfortable doing because it's who I am. It's where I'm from. I'm from that environment. I don't, I'm not intimidated by it. In fact, you know, I learned to, to thrive in it and, and to survive in it. So building those relationships with guys who looked like me was it was easy. Right? It was, you know what I mean? I had to I had to get past, so to speak. <laughs> you feel me? And, and shout out to them boys on Bridge and Torresdale because I know that, you know, there's still probably, you know, some young men out there trying to find that way. And, um, you know, salute to them guys. Much respect. But I am going to take the time here and say stop the violence. Stop the senseless killing of one another. I feel like I have a obligation and a duty um, to say that, but I have the respect to say that. One of the um, one of the incidents that you know I experienced there that involved uh, the murdering of a uh, of a uh, young man that lived across the uh, the street from you know where we were staying at the time. My roommate, the guy I was living with or rooming with. He had, you know, started to have some difficulties with his uh, mental health. And it was due to the killing of the kid, Troy, that I, that I had mentioned. Like I said, we had you know, known him through uh, through passing. When he was killed, you know, that, that put him in a very dark space. And, you know, I, w- I would say myself as well. You know, he kind of uh, put himself in, in a shell, so to speak, going outside. And, you know, he was dealing with some things. You know, it had been some time since that shooting. And so I had convinced him to... Uh, to go with me to the laundromat and, you know, wash some clothes, get out the house type of thing. Um, he said yes. And so, you know, I'm going to the car, put it in the laundry bag. Right, I got it, you know, thrown over my shoulder. You know, I come down the stoop and, you know, I, I start heading towards my car. I see a black SUV pull up. The windows come down and all you hear is gunfire. So I hit the ground just like everybody else that was outside on that block. And when the car sped off, I stood up and I yelled out, yo, is everybody all right? Real shit. (laughs) Real shit. Yo, is everybody all right? Man, when I tell you these people got up off the ground and started carrying on about their day-to-day lives like nothing had just happened, I am not playing, right? Like, I'm I'm so serious. Uh, You know, me, I went right into, you know, flight or fight mode. And so um, I saw the guy who had just been shot. And I, I run over to him to start administering first aid. Ain't no shit, guys. I felt like I was in I was in war. And I ran over to administer first aid to this guy. And I seen that he was shot in the head. And he was dead. There was, there was nothing to do. So at that moment, you know, I think it hit me. And I slowly started to, to, to walk backwards up against my car. And um, I'm like, wow. You know, for a moment, I was shocked, like, yo, what the fuck just, what the fuck just happened? And, you know, I felt helpless because it wasn't nothing that I can do. And then, you know, a couple seconds to a minute later, you know, his house door opens up and his mother comes out and she, man, she, she, she yells off one of the loudest cries I have ever 
heard in my life and it was so painstaking and I'm fucked up. And then a few moments later, the Philadelphia police uh, arrive in in an SUV and man, I shit you not. Two cops got out the car. One grabbed Buddy by the feet. One grabbed him by the hands or, or by the arms or whatever. And they put him in the back of the cop car and they drove off, man. That shit was wild, son. I just remember just being in this state of shock and awe. And I remember, you know, talking about it on social media, everybody asking me if I was okay. And I'm like, you know, I'm straight or whatever. But mind you, right, now here's the significance in that story. I'm 31 years old. I'm far removed from the hood. I joined the military at 18 years old. And I'm in my late, you know, early 30s. And I'm experiencing a killing in a, in a, in a neighborhood that I'm living in. And I'm working for corporate America at the same time. See, look at that. Look at the complexity in that situation. Corporate America by day, Frankfurt native by night, family and children down south. I'm just trying to make it. And I'm willing to go through anything to do it. And so when you look at me and you look at the things that I possess and, you know, you see the house, you know, the new truck. I want you to know that that's a story that goes with that stuff. And those things are not important to me because at the end of the day, I hustled when I didn't have it. And I continue to hustle now that I have it. Life ain't about that. Life is about sacrifice, commitment, you know, resilience, perseverance, right? Not the material things. Those come by way of default, by way, so to speak. You got to really focus on those intangible things that people tend to overlook. And, you know, one of the things that people overlook the most is faith. And my definition of faith is the ability to believe in the unseen, It's the ability to be optimistic through uncertainty. And faith has gotten me from 211 East Beach Street, Goldsboro, North Carolina, one bedroom shack with my grandmother and grandfather to sitting on, you know, an acre of land, you know, in a a five bedroom home. The only thing that did it was faith.